Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning, church. I got to be honest with you, I love church. I love the church. I love this church. I love the church here. I love the church there. Uh, I'm a church guy. I like doing church, being church, going to church. It's just how I am. Amen. I love the church. And uh, uh, the buckets are not coming. Remember when the buckets used to come? Remember passing buckets? Huh? The buckets are not coming. So if the bucket won't come to you, what do you do? You go to the bucket. And they're, you know, at the exits and all that. All right, well, it's good to see you and good to have you. Uh, We're into one of my favorite liturgical seasons of the church calendar, finding God in the music. I'm sure we're going to have to have an ecumenical council to add that, but uh, finding God in the music, this is season 12. Uh, Our theme this year is songs that make you think. This is track three. There'll be six. This is track three of songs that make you think in season 12 of finding God in the music. Now, last Sunday, I gave you a hint as to who the artist for this week will be. In fact, I gave you more than a hint. I just told you. I told you. If, you know, if you're paying attention in School of Rock, you would know. I, I said it is the first super group. Now, a super group is not a group that's super. Okay, I mean, that's... You know, the Beatles are not a super group. They're a group that became, they start off, you know, they're, they're, nobody knows them. They're the, they're the quarrymen playing in the cavern club, and then they become the biggest band in the world. That's not a super group. A super group is comprised of components of artists who already have very su- successful careers, and they come together. All right, it's, it's Shaq joining, joining Kobe. This is that situation. They're already big stars, and they get together. And so who is the first in the world of rock of the supergroup? It is Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Mm-hmm, got a few fans. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. David Crosby from, uh, from The Birds. Stephen Stills from, or, yeah, Crosby Stills, I got to get it right. Stephen Stills from Buffalo Springfield, Graham Nash from The Hollies. They formed first, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, a, an American a Canadian, a Brit, and then a little later, Neil Young, also from Buffalo, Springfield, but by this time he already has a huge successful solo career, then Neil Young joins them. And that's how Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young came together, and eventually they were playing stadiums. They were, they were a big deal. Now, so we know who the artist is, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. What about the song? Well, there's a lot of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young songs I could I could work with Carry On. I love that song. Carry On, uh, Teach Your Children, Our House. I could, I, could, I could preach on that one real easy. But what I'm going with is Woodstock. Thus, I wore my most Woodstock shirt today. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's all about. Woodstock, a song that is about the big music festival. At Max Yazgar's farm in New York. Oh, Max, he was a cool guy, a dairy farmer up there. These kids were looking for a place to have a concert and nobody wanted them. And he finally said, well, I got a big dairy farm. They can come to my place. And they did. 
like a half a million of them did. I mean, it was, it was a big deal. Uh, three days of music and peace is how it was built, and that's really what it was. Turned out to be three days of music and peace, and it is sort of the, the culmination of the hope of the 60s. It occurred 51 years ago this very weekend. Last year was the 50th anniversary. I would have gone to Woodstock, but I was 10 years old, and I, I couldn't get my parents to take me for some reason. Come on, Mom and Dad, take me to Woodstock. You know, I thought Woodstock was like, you know, Amazonia or something. I <laughs> so the song is Woodstock, but here we have to make something clear. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young is really, it's a super group of four genius songwriters. But neither David Crosby nor Stephen Stills nor Graham Nash nor Neil Young wrote that song. The song Woodstock is in fact written by Joni Mitchell. She's kind of an icon of the 60s. Uh, those of you that know Led Zeppelin's going to California, there's a girl out there. I hear there's a girl out there with love in her eyes and flowers in her hair. That's Robert Plant talking about Joni Mitchell. So Joni Mitchell was invited to perform at Woodstock. But somehow her manager got the bright idea that it'd be better for her to appear on the Dick Cavett show instead, which in retrospect probably wasn't the best way to go. And uh, so she does the Dick Cavett show while Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young and a bunch of other people are playing Woodstock. And she gets a call from her then boyfriend, Graham Nash, and he is just effusive and telling her how fantastic this thing is. A half a million people and, you know, it's just music and peace and it's wonderful. And, you know, they're having a great time. There's a lot of mud, but still they're having a great time. I talked last year to somebody that was at Woodstock. I said, what was it like? They said, it was like mud, hunger, and great music. <laughs> and so... She's seeing the news report and she's hearing from her boyfriend about how great Woodstock is. She could have been there, but she's not. And so kind of in her sorrow, she sits down there in her hotel room in New York City and writes the song Woodstock. Now her version, I mean it's her song, is a, a melancholy piano ballad. You hear the sadness in it. I mean the lyrics are there that we're going to hear but it, there's a sadness, and that's, I think that's coming from her knowing that I, I missed out on this thing. So about three months later, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young covered it, and they turned it into a rock song. It's got that great opening Neil Young guitar riff that you go, oh, right off, this is a rock song. And so I love this song. In my mind, even though it doesn't come out until 1970, in some ways, this is the apex of the 60s sound. When I hear the song Woodstock, I'm thinking the 1960s, even though it comes out in 1970. So Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young covering Joni Mitchell's Woodstock.
By the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong and everywhere was a song and a celebration and I dreamed I saw the bomber death planes riding shotgun in the sky, turning into butterflies over our nation. We are stardust, we are golden, we are caught in the devil's bargain. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. That'll make you think. What that is, what that is, what Joni Mitchell's lyrics are, are what Walter Brueggemann, who I Zoomed with this week, that's a little name dropping for you, what Walter Brueggemann calls an act of prophetic imagination. By the time we got to Woodstock, we're half a million strong, everywhere was a song and celebration, and I dreamed. I dreamed I saw the bomber death planes riding shotguns in the sky, turning into butterflies above our nation. It's an act of prophetic imagination. It's the kind of thing a poet can do. We see the way things are, but then the poet says, but they could be like this. 
It could change. There could be another way. There could be a transformation. We are stardust. We are golden. We're caught in the devil's bargain that something somewhere along the way has gone wrong. Some deal was made with the devil way back when, and it ended up with us getting thrown out of the garden. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. I want you to listen one more time. And then I'm going to read you six verses of Scripture. This is a poem. This is a song. Poetic and prophetic are related. It's an act of prophetic imagination. By the time I got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong. And everywhere was a song and a celebration. And I dreamed I saw the bomber death planes riding shotgun in the sky, turning into butterflies above our nation. We are stardust. We are golden. We're caught in the devil's bargain. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Genesis. The Lord took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden. Isaiah. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Again, Isaiah. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Ezekiel. On both sides of the river, all kinds of trees will grow. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. John, now in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. Revelation. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. We'll get back to these texts. I want to talk a little bit about the 60s, though. So in the 1940s, there was a world war. It was the second one. 85 million people died. 85 million. This was back when world population was two and a half billion, about a third of what it is today. And 85 million people died, and of the 85 million people that died, nearly two-thirds were civilians. They weren't combatants, but bombs were dropped on them anyway. So finally, that war comes to an end. American GIs come back home. For the most part, they don't want to much talk about it. They want to get on with life and build families, and they have lots of babies. It was a boom. <laughs> a lot of babies were born. I come from the tail end of that baby boom. So all these babies are being born. And they're growing up in homes where, by and large, they don't talk that much about this Second World War that killed 85 million people. Now, these baby boomers are coming of age in the 60s. Let's say, you know, some kid is born in 1950. By 1966, he's 16. And now he's becoming aware that just less than a generation ago, there was a world war that killed 85 million people. Two-thirds were civilians. And now we've got nuclear weapons. We've got weapons that can kill an entire city, and we've got thousands of them. And we're off in a war in Vietnam, and we're not quite sure what for. And these young people started thinking, ah, there's got to be a better way. See, young people are more capable of acts of imagination. 
Unless we deliberately try to keep our imagination limber, it calcifies and we, pretty, we, we slide into that which has been is that which must be. Teenagers don't think that way. They're like, well, why? It doesn't have to be that way. And so they know we've just come out of a world war killing 85 million people, and now we got enough weapons to kill the whole world over many, many times, and we're off in a war somewhere on the other side of the world, and we're not quite sure what for. And they say, you know, there's got to be a better way. And they start talking about peace, and they start protesting a little bit. All, all we're saying is give peace a chance. You know who that guy is there, Perry, sticking that flower in that gun? Who is he? Tell me. You're exactly right. Jonathan Gainsborough later on became a Jesus freak. All right, so that's the 60s. That's what's driving that. It's a counterculture movement. It's counterculture. The culture is one way, but then young people go, well, we could go another way. All we're saying is give a piece of chance. There's got to be a way that doesn't just always lead to every few generations or so world wars because the stakes are too high now. Have another one of those and we're all gone. We'll just leave the planet to the cockroaches. And so they're thinking about there's got to be a better way. And that's the peace movement. But by the time we get to Nixon and Watergate, it's pretty much over. What we call the 60s is not really the 60s. What we call the 60s is really November 63 assassination of President Kennedy to the resignation of Richard Nixon in whatever it was, July, August of 1974. That's the 60s. Spans a little bit into the 70s. But by this time, it's, it's kind of exhausted. It's run out of steam. And pretty much, the vast majority of the counterculture kids of the 60s just sort of got with the program. Just okay. Yeah. So much for being counterculture, let's just, let's just slide in with the culture and just get on with life. Now, the counterculture movement wasn't wrong in dreaming of peace and imagining a world beyond war. They were wrong in not finding a better Messiah than the Beatles. That's where they missed it. Now, the libertine aspects of the counterculture uh, are incompatible with Christian ethics. I want to go on record as saying that. The libertine aspects of the counterculture movement of the 60s are incompatible with Christian ethics. But to break away from the dominant culture where war was assumed as inevitable is something to be admired. The early church, now, now wider culture always is suspicious of counterculture. I could say wider culture always resists counterculture. Wider culture feels threatened by counterculture. Wider, wider culture sees counterculture as subversive, because it is. And so there's always opposition. But do you understand, do you understand, do you understand the early church was counterculture? It was a counterculture movement. The Roman Empire is going this way, going this way, and going this way. And then there was the subversive groups of Jesus followers gathering in homes across the empire that was going the other direction. The wider culture saying Caesar is Lord and it's got to be this way. This counterculture saying Jesus is Lord and there's another way. And it's the way that leads to life. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so they're going against the grain. They're swimming upstream. Sometimes that breaks out in persecution against them. But they say it's worth it. We'll pay that price because we believe in Jesus. 
So to imagine a world of peace that is something like a return to the Garden of Eden. Something's gone wrong, but we got to get back. We are stardust. We are golden. We're caught in the devil's bargain. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. To imagine a world of peace that is something like a return to the biblical Garden of Eden is not just admirable, it's prophetic, and more importantly, it's the big story that the Bible tells. What is the big story the Bible tells? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. It was very good. God did not create a bad world. God created a good world. And God took Adam, that is, Adam. It means human. Adam from the Adam, it means human from the humus, a soul from the soil. God takes Adam, humankind, and places Adam, humankind, in a what? In a garden. And they are to be gardeners, and they're to, they're to tend the garden, care for the garden, expand the garden, make the whole world a garden. Something goes wrong. There was a devil's bargain. And humankind is expelled from the garden. They're exiled. They've lost the garden. They wander the world as an exiled man. Lost the garden. And now the big story of redemption begins with its cast of characters like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. And God is forming a peculiar people, a particular people, a chosen people for himself that will be different from all the other peoples. God forms a people that will be counter to the wider pagan culture. And through them, God is going to bring salvation to the whole world. Now, by the time we get to the Hebrew prophets, we're well into the story. Things have gone right and things have gone wrong. But you arrive at this particular time, especially like in the 9th, 8th, 7th centuries B.C., where there are these great poets like, like Joni Mitchell. I mean, like Isaiah or Malachi. But it's that same feel. They're poets with prophetic imagination. And so Isaiah imagines in his poetry, he says, imagine that someday God's going to come. God's going to come and he's going to come through his chosen one, his anointed one, his Messiah. God's going to come through his Messiah. And when he comes, this Messiah is going to rule the nations. And guess what? Guess what? We're going to take all these swords we got. Swords only have one purpose, therefore harming and killing others. We're going to take these swords and turn them into plows. We're going to take these spears, these weapons of war, these spears, and we're going to turn them into something we can work in the vineyard with. We're going to go from battlefields to vineyards. It's an act of prophetic imagination. We'd say today, we're going to go, we're going to take these tanks and turn them into tractors, these missile silos and turn them into grain silos. It's an act of prophetic imagination. Now, it's, it's just a poem, right? Except that it's not because it ends up in our canonical text. We call this sacred. We call this holy. We call this inspired. We call this the word of God. Amen. And so the idea is that a Messiah, an anointed one, a chosen one from God will come and lead the world into peace. 
Later on, Isaiah plays around with his idea a little bit more in his poetry. And he says, well, it's like this. Well, we say it this way. We say the lion will lay down with the lamb because we like the alliteration of lion and lamb. Text actually says the wolf will lay down with the lamb and the lion will eat straw like an ox. See, it's an act of prophetic imagination. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Lion. It's not to be taken literal. It's to be taken literary. The problem with the world isn't that lions are carnivorous. The problem with the world isn't that lions run down gazelles on the African savannah. The problem with the world is among the human people, very often the strong prey upon the weak. Very often the strongest among us become predatorial. And they devour the weak for their own purposes. But the prophet Isaiah says, I have a vision that as the reign of God comes among us through his chosen one, through his chosen king, through the one that he will anoint as king, that these predatorial beasts will no longer be beastly, they will be humane, and they will live gently with the weaker around them. During the exile, another Hebrew poet prophet raises up named Ezekiel. The temple is gone by this time, but he's imagining a new temple a mystical temple, and he sees that out of that temple there flows down the steps a little trickle of water. From the, tri- from the temple, there's a little trickle of water flows down. Just a little trickle, but as it flows, it gets bigger and deeper and wider. And it flows to the east and then to the south. It flows down into the desert place. Those of you that have been to Israel with us, you know what it's like when we go from Jerusalem and then go to the Dead Sea, it turns into a desert. And he imagines this, this little stream trickling out down the steps of the temple. But as it goes, it grows. It gets deeper and wider. And then he sees it's like everywhere that thing goes. It's in the desert. But all of a sudden, on either side of the river, whoop, trees start popping up. Trees are growing up. And he says, you know what? Those trees have 12 kinds of fruit. They bear the fruit every month. And the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And by the time that river hits the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is healed. The Dead Sea becomes living And now there's fish in it. And the fishermen ply their trade upon its waters. It's a poetic vision. It's all contingent upon this Messiah showing up. And then we jump over into the New Testament when the Messiah shows up. We don't know his name. We know he's coming in the Old Testament. We don't know his name. Turns out to be the only name it could be. It's Yahshua. means the salvation of Jehovah. Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Messiah. And the culmination of the ministry of Jesus is his death upon the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then he's buried. Where is he buried? He's buried in a garden. Three days later, he's raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene's the first one to see him. And she thinks he's the gardener, and she's not wrong. The gardener's back in the garden. Way back at the beginning of the story. Way back at the beginning of the story. The gardener lost the garden. The gardener was exiled from the garden. The gardener was driven out of the garden. But now, guess what? The gardener's back in the garden. And now he's engaging in his task of saving the world of turning the world back into a garden. 
And then we come to the end of the story in the book of Revelation where you have this city coming from the heavens, coming down, New Jerusalem. And it's both a garden and a city. It's a city, it's a civilization, it's a society, it's a polis, but it's in harmony with the earth. It's not against the earth. It's not fighting the earth. In fact, it is the marriage of heaven and earth. That's why the, the metaphor bounces back and forth, but sometimes it's a city, sometimes it's a bride, because there's going to be a marriage of heaven and earth. And the rift that has separated the two is going to be healed, and heaven and earth come back together and we've got a garden society. We've got a society, a civilization, a polis, a city that can live in harmony with the earth. And indeed, there's that river flowing. And there are those trees on either side of the river. And there are the leaves that are for the healing of the nation. And the people of Jesus are living there. Now, outside the city, there is a lake of fire. For the beast and the dragon and the false prophet... And all those that want to go that way, wider culture, main culture, this is the only way to do it. They're out in a lake of fire, but fear not. Inside the city, the Holy Spirit and the bride, the people, the church, say, hey, y'all out there, are you thirsty? And they're saying, well, we're in a lake of fire, you know, you can imagine, a little bit parched. Well, come on in, come on in. Because we got like fountains everywhere here and they're all free. Just, you know, wash your garments in the blood of the lamb. Come on in. Be a part of something that is healing, something that is being restored, something that is being recovered. This is our big story. This is our beautiful story. We call it the gospel. Because it's good news. The gospel is not... For God so hated the world that he killed his only begotten son to satisfy his wrath so that some people can go to heaven when they die. I know it gets distorted into that, but that is not it. For God so loved his own good world that he sent his only begotten son, his word, his logos, and his word will not return. The world will be saved because God doesn't fail in what he sets out to do. The world will be saved because God sent his son into the world to save the world. And the son's not going to come back and say, ah, I gave it a shot, Father. But, you know, how those people are. God so loved the world, his vision for human society, that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in Jesus and start leaning into that would be taken beyond the realm of life where people are always perishing. Where the life is being sucked out of us. And instead we'll be embracing the life of the age to come. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He could have sent any old prophet to do that. But God sent his son into the world to save the world. And the world will be saved because God's going to save it through Christ. That's good news. That's our gospel. Believers in Jesus now have the privilege of living that way now. Don't, don't let someone do the bait and switch on you. Don't let somebody say, okay, that's all, that's all true. That's all true. But that's only when Jesus comes back again. No, 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 no. That's just kicking the can down the road so you can just stay dominant culture. 
There is a way that seems right to a man, but it is the way of death. No. The baptized are from the future. The baptismal is a time machine. Throws you into the future. The wider society, the dominant culture, may not yet acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, but we do. We don't say, well, you know, Jesus isn't really Lord. We're just waiting for him to become Lord. Oh, no Christian would say that. We say Jesus is Lord today, right now. And we have the privilege of living like it. We're already turning our swords into plowshares, our spears into pruning hooks. We're already trying to be a lion laying down with the lamb. We're already trying to be a temple that healing water flows out of because we believe that Jesus Christ is the gardener and the gardener has been raised and he's back in the garden and we want to be a part of what he's doing. And so we don't have to go out and directly try to change the world. It's enough for us to be the world already changed by Christ and say, out there, well, you know, if they're, if they're following the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, it's going to be kind of a lake of fire. But here, here, among those who believe, we have the possibility of living according to kingdom come because Jesus is Lord. We confess it and we acknowledge it and we live that way. Amen. So to have no hope for this world, to give up on this world, to want to abandon this world is deeply unchristian. The Christian hope is not we're going, but heaven is coming. And in the meantime, we're the outpost that is living according to that vision right now. What we need is a new countercultural Jesus movement. There was a Jesus movement in the 1970s that I was part of, but I'm kind of also thinking about the one that was in the 80s, 70s. How this thing got started. We have to be willing to be different than the wider culture. If, if the way we are living our life doesn't look a little bit absurd to the wider culture, how are we being faithful to Jesus Christ? He calls us to be different, to be other. I mean, some people should be saying to you now and then, I think what you believe is crazy. You... Because either Jesus Christ is raised from the dead or my life is absurd. Amen. So let's be countercultural. Let's, let's be countercultural in the way we hope. The way we hope. Don't be a cynic. Being a cynic is not prophetic. That's just, it's just being a cynic. You can hear the hiss of the sermon in the word cynicism. Don't be a cynic. Believe that the world is going to be saved. Hold on to that hope. I know there's a lot of problems. I know that. But that isn't the bottom line. That isn't my eschatological vision. That isn't where I think this thing is headed. So despite it all, I have hope. Let's be a countercultural people of love. Of love. I mean, we can, we can love our friends. Sometimes we can even love our family. <laughs> but Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Well, we can only do that if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, but it is possible because there is the Holy Spirit to fill us. Amen. And instead of, you know, engaging in the us versus them, right versus left, left versus right, elephants versus donkeys, donkeys versus... Blah, 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 
We can, we can say, because Jesus is Lord, and I'm, I, I put the well-being ultimately of our world in his hands, I'm free to love those that I deeply disagree with, or those that deeply disagree with me. I can love everybody. That's countercultural. Let's be countercultural in our fidelity, in our faithfulness to Jesus. Jesus is the one that I believe in. And so, so I'm, I'm kind of taken out of this other game. This, this, this left-right grid, this factional, partisan, hate the other side. I'm kind of like, I'm out of that game because my, my allegiance is to Christ and I want to walk in his way. His way is love, his way is grace, his way is mercy, his way is peace, his way is forgiveness. And I can love everybody. Let's be countercultural by living beautiful lives. By living beautiful lives. And what is beautiful? Well, a lot of things, but certainly faith, hope, and love are beautiful. And they are contrasted with fear, cynicism, and hate, which I think is indicative. I mean, if you spend, if you're spending hours, I'm going to say it now. I'm going to say it. Should I say it? I'm checking in. I'm going to say it. If you're spending hours a day drinking from the poison well of cable news, you are being formed in fear, cynicism, and hate. And if hate's too strong a word, because you say, I don't hate anybody, all right. Fear, cynicism, and anger. Fear, cynicism, and anger. That's just, you know what? You're just, you're just a log. You're just, you're, just a, you're just a dead squirrel floating down the stream. I couldn't come up with the right thing there. <laughs> you're just floating downstream. You're called to be countercultural, not just to go with the flow of fear, the flow of cynicism, the flow of, the flow of anger. You're to have life and move in the direction of faith, hope, and love. And Jesus enables us to do that because he's filled us with his Holy Spirit. So, we are stardust. We are golden. Been caught in the devil's bargain, but Jesus saves We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. But it's not really that. It's not really going back, to because you can't ever go back. We can't go back. But what we can do is follow Jesus into the new Jerusalem. Now it's under construction, so it's a bit messy. It's not perfect. Don't, don't, if you, don't be looking for some kind of perfection as you assemble with those that gather in the name of Jesus. It's under, it's just, you know, you know those old signs, please excuse our mess. We're under construction. So just please excuse our mess. We're under construction, but hey, we're under construction. It's being built. And we can participate. We can be a part of it. And Lord Jesus, we pray. We pray that we could be a part of what you're building. We know we can. We know we are. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to be a part of New Jerusalem, not Lake of Fire. We don't want to follow the dragon, the beast, the false prophet. We don't want to go the way of fear, cynicism, and anger. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. That in a world of fear, we might have faith that when everybody's cynical, we might have hope. When there's so much anger around and hate, that we could be the people of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us, to be, help us to be assistant gardeners with you, Jesus. You're the one that's in charge. You're the one that's going to turn the world into the garden. 
but, but maybe we could help. We're ready to get out our gardening gloves and, and get to work and help out any way we can. Thank you, Jesus. Amen and amen.